If you remember all the way back to Christmas, we started a series called The Road to Bethlehem Leads to Calvary. And we took a road trip, all right? We took a road trip, and we used, this is called a map for those of you who have never used one before. And, and we took a, uh, and you can see the, the trip that we made there. We wanted to look at the bigger picture of Christmas because when Christmas comes, we see the babe in the manger and we hear about the babe in the manger and we focus on the babe in the manger and that is all well and good and that is really, really important. But there's a whole lot of stuff that surrounds the babe in the manger before and after that gives us the really big picture of salvation and what salvation is. And we're continuing that today because if you remember back in Advent at, at Christmas we said we were going to continue the series on Easter well it's Easter so we're continuing that series this morning we will be looking at the resurrection this morning we'll be looking at Calvary but before we do any of that let's go to God in prayer Father God we come to you right now we ask and pray that you would be with us uh, give us clear minds and clear hearts as we look at review what we did in Advent and as we move forward into some other towns this morning. Father, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to the Word of God, that we would see the grand picture that you have planned about how you saved mankind. Lord God, we thank you for this time together. In Christ's name, amen. So far, we have visited, if you remember, uh, there's going to be a little bit of review here. We've visited the towns of Paradise, Rebellion, Promise, Revelation, and Bethlehem. Those are the towns we are. We've been sitting in Bethlehem for a while since Christmas. You know, we kind of got an Airbnb there, all right, and we kinda, it's time for us to leave that, so we're going to pack up today and leave the town of Bethlehem. And just as a review, in the towns of Paradise and Rebellion, we asked some questions, if you remember. We asked questions for each town that we went in to help us understand what was going on. In the town of Paradise and Rebellion, we asked this question, does mankind need a Savior? Remember that? Does mankind need a Savior? The answer we found in the first three chapters of Genesis, and that answer was yes, absolutely, mankind absolutely with beyond a shadow of a doubt needs a Savior. We were in the town of Paradise, and in the, in the town of Paradise, the first two chapters of Genesis, we found that God made a what? Perfect what? World. A good world. A very good world. There was Adam and Eve. They had a perfect world, perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with God. They had perfect work. It, everything was perfect. Perfect food. Perfect climate. Perfect relationship with the animals. And when God says something is very good, how good is that? You can't, we can't comprehend it. There's no possible way for us to comprehend when God ended creation and said, this is very good. Didn't last. You see, that's when we moved to the town of rebellion. Because even though it was very good, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sinned. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when God has specifically told them not to. Their rebellion, their disobedience, their sin against God immediately transformed the very good relationship with God into a not-so-good relationship with the world, with each other, with God. 
it completely changed all of creation. One act of disobedience. Changed everything. There was no longer the very good. There was the sin-cursed world that they lived in. And you can look at those sermons online. We have them online. We're not going to go through all of the details on, on those sermons. But we did learn that all of us inherited Adam's rebellious, sinful nature and separation from God. And that desperately means that we need a Savior. Because I don't think anybody here will ever argue with me, or I've never had anybody argue with me, that man is inherently sinful. Because how many people here have sinned? Okay? Did anybody have to teach you to sin? Just look at a little kid who wants to be a little bit rebellious. You don't ever have to teach a toddler how to throw a temper tantrum. You don't have to teach a young elementary school kid how to lie. All the parents are going, yep, absolutely true. We all inherited that from Adam. And so we do need a Savior. And so then we left the town of rebellion, and we stopped in the town of promise, a town that brought comfort from the realization that we all do need a Savior. And in that town of promise, we found that God has promised to send a Savior. God has promised to send a Savior. And we answered, uh, we, we found that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I'd like everybody to turn there because this is where it begins. Very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. I want us to get the idea. We're actually going to be going through a lot of the Bible because I want everybody to understand and see the big picture of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We were in the town of rebellion. Now we're in the town of promise. Verse 15. This is when God is giving them the results of the rebellion. This is when God is giving the results of Satan's deception. And he's talking to the woman now. He's talking to Eve. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Excuse me, he's talking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and your woman, the woman and between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Basically what God said is one of Eve's offspring in the future is going to take care of everything that you want to destroy. Satan, you're not going to win. You may bruise mankind's heel, but this one person, this Savior, will crush your head. You will not succeed. And where do we see this? The very first part of Genesis. It all starts. Christmas starts in Genesis. Easter starts in Genesis. It starts three chapters into the Bible. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we don't grasp that. This led us to ask another question. We have this Savior. This is promised Savior in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We asked another question. Has God identified who that promised Savior is? And we left the town of... Rebellion in the town of paradise, and we moved into the town of revelation with the idea and asking that question, has God identified that promised Savior? Who is He? And again, we were able to answer, He absolutely did. You see, He didn't tell Adam and Eve this. He didn't reveal it to them. But as 
human history moved on, we find it in the Old Testament. We find multiple prophecies in the Old Testament that point to who God's promised Savior was. There's a disagreement on how many prophecies actually point to this Savior. Most scholars will agree that about 47 prophecies exist that identify who this Savior is. And we just did some math, if you remember. We did some math. We only took eight of those prophecies. And we said, what are the chances, what are the the statistics on one man fulfilling just eight of those 47 prophecies? And we said it was 10 to the 17th power that just one man would do that. And you say, well, that's a really big number. And And so we said, well, what does that number represent? It would represent the state of Texas covered two feet in silver dollars two feet deep in silver dollars and then you would take one silver dollar you would mark it throw it into all those other silver dollars throughout the whole state of texas to mix them all up blindfold a guy and tell him find that silver dollar you're looking at that and you're going like that's impossible just for eight now think of it as being 47 prophecies 47 prophecies It boggles the mind. And you want to know something? Do you want to know who fulfilled every single one of those 47 prophecies? And we looked at a few of them during our Advent. Jesus Christ is the only man that has ever fulfilled, even has fulfilled all 47. Think of how deep Texas would have to be in silver dollars to fulfill 47 prophecies in the Old Testament. And then we asked one more Final question in this town. Has that promised Savior arrived? Has that promised Savior arrived? And we joyfully again found the answer to be yes. And this is where we ended. Because we ended where? In Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem. And we said, how do we know that he's arrived? Well, the Bible tells us over and over We see that we found that the angels announced his arrival. The Magi confirmed his arrival. Herod was threatened by his arrival. Simon and Anna praised his arrival. And God confirmed his arrival. We went through all of those. The Samaritans believed he arrived. The apostles gave witness to his arrival. And Jesus Christ himself claimed to be the Savior and to say, I have arrived. That's, that's the trip we've been on. And that has been a really exciting trip. We've been hanging out in Bethlehem for a while. Great, great place to hang out. But we have looked at, starting from Genesis all the way through the gospel so far, on what Christmas meant. There's no doubt that Jesus Christ, the babe in the manger, was and is the promised Savior. He fulfilled the prophecies and His birth was announced by heaven itself. What a day it was when God's Son made a physical appearance at His own creation. And again, why did He have to come? Because mankind needed a Savior. Because He needed a Savior. And today we're going to take up our trip again. We're going to extend our trip out a little bit. And we're going to go to the town of Calvary. We're going to drive to the town of Calvary. And in this town we find the answer to the question, how did the promised Savior save us? How did the promised Savior save us? And there are a number of ways that we uh, can answer this question, or a number of answers to this question. And this is where, get your Bibles ready. Uh, the pew Bibles or the red Bibles in front of you. I'm not going to give you the pages to all the scriptures we're going to, but I will give you some of them. 
turn with me when you have a chance and as I go give you these passages so that we can see the Bible for ourselves. So how did the promised Savior save us? First and foremost, he took on human flesh to become like us. He took on human flesh to be just like us. And we find that if you want to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. How did the promised Savior save us? He took on human flesh to become like us. Starting in verse 16. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. And therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be what? Made like his brothers, us humans, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation, to set aside God's wrath is what that means for the sins of the people. He had to become human. He could not save us unless he was human. Fully human. 100% human. He could not become our high priest and represent us unless he was human. If Jesus, the promised Savior, hadn't become 100% human, then he could not have become the one who saved us. He could not appease God's wrath against us. And so he came. How did he save us? He came and became like us in human flesh. And then, not only did he come as the babe in the manger in Bethlehem, for the next 30 plus years, he lived a sinless life. He lived a sinless life. The promised Savior could not have saved us if he had to die for his own sins. He would have had his own debt to pay. But Jesus lived for 30 years and fulfilled every point of the law. Turn with me to, to 1 John 3, 5. And if you're in the Pew Bible, the Red Bible, that's on page 1,303. 1,303. 1 John 3, 5. 1 John 3, verse 5. You know that he, who's he? Jesus Christ appeared in order to take away sins. What do we say with that? Amen. Without Jesus Christ, there is no salvation from sin. He is the only person who can save us from our sins. As we continue in 1 John, He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there, what? Is no sin. In Him, there is no sin. There is not an, a speck, there's not an iota of sin within Him. He is completely pure and holy and righteous and he lived that way for 30 plus years on this planet think about that then turn over to page 1278 of the pew bible hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet yet as we are, yet without sin. He lived his life. He was tempted like we are. He experienced the emotions like we do, yet he did it without sin. Now, let's consider what it means to be sinless in this life for just a minute. Let, let's just stop here for a minute. I don't think we grasp what sinlessness means on this planet. So I hope I hit every age group here. Y'all ready for this? For all the kids in here, 
He perfectly obeyed his mom and dad in every respect for 30 plus years. Perfectly. He never lied. He never stole. He never, here's for everybody, he never had a sinful reaction towards something that his brothers and sisters did to him. Never. He had multiple brothers and sisters. He had sinful parents. And he never reacted in a sinful way. We could go, that list could go on and on and on. He never disobeyed any authority in his life. He perfectly memorized the scriptures. He never sinned. These and many, many other situations come to mind, but there is really one command that kind of trumps all of these when we get to the idea of sinlessness. Those things we cannot relate to, correct? Because we, we've all lived through those things. But this one command we find in the Old Testament, and it's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. In light of what we're talking about, listen to what this says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. Suggestion, option, or command? Command. Keep that in mind. We also find this command repeated multiple times in the New Testament. If we take a look at Mark chapter 12, verse 30, we find this. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now reflect on that for a minute. How many of you have ever kept that command in your entire life? Loving God with every part of your being. Never loving yourself more. Never loving a hobby more. Never loving your career more. Never loving your family more. Never loving your... Anything more. You love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being totally, 100% of every second of every day. There was never a time in Jesus' life as a child, as a teen, or as an adult where he didn't perfectly love God with all his being. Jesus never broke this command. Understand that. Grasp that. Grasp the immensity of that. There is no and ever has been a chance that we would ever even come close to that. It's only by the grace and mercy of God that He deals with us like He does when we break that command almost every second of every day. Jesus Christ didn't. Even if someone were able to obey this command, it wouldn't be long before they broke it. They would find themselves in so many different positions of loving their spouse or loving something in this world or loving themselves more. And this is why he was able to be our Savior. He obeyed all of God's commands, all of God's laws, lived out everything that God wanted him to do. He lived a a sinless life. And this enabled him to die on the cross for our sins. This enabled him to die on the cross for our sins. He died the death that we should have died. 
Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Page 1,295 on your, in your pew Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He died on the cross for us. He, Jesus Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He bore our sins. He took our sins upon him because he did not have anything of his own to pay for. And he said, I'll trade my righteousness for your sin and I'll take the wrath of God that you should have taken. 1 Peter chapter 3, just a couple pages over from where you're at. Verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit. Jesus Christ died for us. He was a perfect, perfectly sinless human being. He offered Himself on the tree for us. And because of His sinless life, Jesus can act as our substitute taking our place at the bar of God's justice. And this is why we speak of, God, of Jesus' work on the cross as being substitutionary. He offered His life as a payment for our sins. It was not to satisfy, if it was not to satisfy God's judgment, judgment for His own sin, but to satisfy God's judgment against our sin. Our sin was laid on Him so he, His righteousness could be laid on us. Our sin was laid on Him so that his righteousness could be laid on us. This is the babe in the manger. This is what started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If we don't see this whole picture, if we don't see this whole trip, we don't stand in awe of what Jesus Christ did and who he was. Then we understand Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But there's a really important question that we have to ask here. For everybody here, why did our Savior have to die? Why did our Savior, why did this man who was predicted in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, why did he have to die? Why couldn't God, because he loves us so much, just pardon our sins? Why couldn't he just overlook everyone's disobedience and rebellion and selfishness? Why did Jesus Christ have to die in our place? And this is such an important question for all of us to consider. And the place for us to start in answering this question is with who God is. We need to understand who God is before we can understand that question. And the first thing I want you to understand about God, about His character, about who He is, that He is a just God. Please turn with me to... Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. The rock, that's God, His work is perfect for all His ways are what? Justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is He. And that idea of is He is something that is extremely important. That word is, that's a verb of the of state of being. He is just. He cannot stop being just. He cannot lay aside his justice just because he loves us. 
On page 574, Psalm 11, 7. Psalm 11, 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold His face. He is righteous. He is just. Now, let me bring this to us a little bit. All right, you ready to raise your hands here for just a second? Okay, if you are a woman here this morning, raise your hand. All right. Now, is there any way that you can stop being a woman? You can have whatever uh, the world says you can have to change your gender and everything like that, but here's the problem we have to deal with. What does your DNA always say that you are? Can you change that? Absolutely not. If you were to change that in the least bit, you would cease to be what? A woman. Okay, guys, if you're a male, if you're a gentleman, raise your hand. Let me ask you this. What does your DNA, guys, say that you are? If you change that in any way, what do you cease to become? Male. If God is just, if God is righteous, if that is who He is, that is His being, if He stops being just, what does He stop being? God. He cannot lay aside His justice just because He loves us. He can't. Because if he said, hey, I'll just let you off, or hey, I just, I'll, I'll, I'll give that sin to you, he ceases to be a righteous judge. And if he ceases to be a righteous and a just judge, he ceases to be God. And that goes against everything the Bible says because he is just. Because God is just, he cannot just pardon any sin any injustice, any disobedience or rebellion. God is constrained by His own character. He cannot lay aside who He is just because He loves us. He must punish sin, every sin you and I have ever done. He must judge every wrong thought, every wrong deed, every form of rebellion against Him, every disobedient act. He has to judge it because He is a just God. And that leaves us in a really bad situation, folks. Because all of us before God come before Him with thousands upon thousands of indictments. Thousands and thousands of indictments. The older you are, the more indictments you have against you. We stand before the bar of God with these indictments. And as Christ followers... The Bible says that we were, thankfully were, past tense, the enemies of God, destined to be the object of His wrath. Turn with me to page 1198, and that would be Romans chapter 5, verse 10. Again, he's telling, he's saying, you were this, but think about what was before that word were. For if while we were enemies... What does that mean? What we were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We were what? Enemies. How many of you here want to be an enemy of a just God? Think about that. In John chapter 3, verse 36, we find this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. 
Anybody who has sin on their own, anybody who has all these indictments goes before the bar of God eventually because everybody will. They are going to see the wrath of God because he is a just God. Not because he is some mean guy up there who is going to schwack us all because we were bad, but because he is just and he must, he must make things right or he would not be a just God. There must be punishment for the sin. And then we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 9, we find this, themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Who rescues us from the wrath to come. Because He did not have any sin of His own. He could rescue us from our the wrath that we have because of our sin. Because he didn't have to pay for his own sin, he could rescue us from God's wrath. It is only through Christ that we can be rescued from that wrath because he is a just God. God is just and must punish sin. And how does that make everybody here feel this morning? On this grand Easter morning. It's kind of heavy, isn't it? Well, guess what? Let's, let's put some joy in this now. You see, God is also love. God is love. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. It's on page 1,304. John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. And what are the next three words? Everybody together. This is to keep all those folks who came in late or came in this morning awake. They're participating, right? So what are the next three words after it says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God, what? Say it with me. Is love. God is love. What does that mean about God? He is. It's part of who He is. Have you ever considered this? God cannot ever do anything unloving because if he did he would cease to be God because he is love it's impossible he's constrained by his character for him to do anything that is unloving he is he is love as much as he is just and just like his justice if he did anything unloving as I said he would cease to be God He is constrained by his character and he cannot lay aside his justice and he cannot lay aside his love. And do you see that there's a character conflict, not conflict, but there's a character, there's a tension between the God of justice and the God of love. There's a a tension there because he can't lay either one aside. He can't say, I love you so much that I'm going to forgive you all the sins that you've ever done. He can't say... That I'm, go- I'm so upset at you for your justice, I'm just going to do away with my love and I'm just going to give you everything that I got towards you in my wrath. He can't. He can't do either one. That's who God is. Remember that. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Now, who are we? You can go back and listen to this sermon during the Advent. We are sinners destined for the wrath of God. 
desperately needing the love of God. True? Who is the bridge between the two? Who made it possible for us to not face God's wrath, but also made it possible for God to be loving and just at the same time? It was Jesus Christ. He's the one. He's the one we're here talking about on this Easter morning. The one who made it possible for us to not have to face the justice of God because of our sins. He's the one that made it possible for us to also feel and experience the love of God. Because when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when we are in the city of Calvary, remember that. We're in the town of Calvary. When he died on the cross, all the indictments against us, against anybody who accepts Jesus Christ by faith, they're gone. Because they were on Jesus' back, not ours. Because Jesus took the wrath that should have been ours. And in doing that, God fulfilled his love for us because he is the one that sent his son. He said, I have to be just, I have to be loved, and here's my son who can fix the problem. And you want to know something? That's why Jesus Christ is the only person that has ever walked this earth that can be that bridge. There is no other way, there is no other religion, there is no other belief system. It does not make any difference. It is only through Jesus Christ because he's the only one that was sinless. He's the only one that can let us experience the love of God because he died for us. And now when you arrive you know where we started this morning? What book did we start in? We're all the way through the Gospels now. You see, the whole Bible speaks to this. It's not just the babe in the manger. It's not just about creation. But we're going to the last town. We're going to finish our town, our trip, on the map. We're going to finish it in the town of resurrection. Because that's where it all comes together. That's where this, this story or this trip is complete. Because he could die for us, he could be sinless, but if there is no resurrection, there is still no salvation. There is no salvation without a resurrection. And in this town of resurrection, we ask it this way, how do we know that God accepted the promised Savior's death on the cross in payment for our sins? How do we know God accepted the promised Savior's death on the cross in payment for our sins? Is that an ultimately important question? Because if we're not sure that God accepted His death, then we're not sure we're saved or can be saved or that it would even be possible to be saved. The answer to this question is how do we know that God accepted the promised Savior's death is summed up in these words. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I told some kids this here not too long ago, uh, some youth that have recently accepted Christ and who are learning what all this means. And we just say Jesus Christ rose from the dead and we say it over and over and we mean it and we really love it, but we really don't get what it means because we've been in church for too many years. 
And so I'm going to use this example. I'm going to use it again and again and again because it helps us. And most of you have heard this from me before. So you lose a loved one. You're here at Sardis Baptist Church. You see them lying in the coffin. We do the funeral. We take them out and we bury them and we have a graveside service and we have a meal afterwards. We miss them. And so you're still going to eat, be eat. Three days later, you're still going to be eating off the meal that Sardis provided for you. Because that always happens. And so when you're finishing up the last chicken leg. And a knock is at the door. You're not thinking anything about it. And you open the door, and there that loved one stands. How many of you would say, oh, I'm so glad you're back and hug them? Or how many of them would slam the door and go, this is not what's supposed to be happening. There is not a person in here that would not freak out. Because people don't come back to life. Yes, in Marvel Comics, because Superman gets killed, I don't know how many times he's coming back, or how many times Batman's coming. They all come back to life somehow in a different universe, in a different way, so we don't lose the character. But in real life, there is no resurrection from the dead. When you are in the ground, you are what? Dead. Are you ever coming back? And if somebody did, one of your loved ones did, you would freak out. Jesus Christ rose from the dead after being in the grave for three days. And we know that that resurrection is why God the Father accepted because we have to understand something. And I want you to turn to a very, very important verse. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. It's on page 1,235. Because this here is going to prove to us unequivocally that God accepted Jesus Christ's payment for our sins. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, page 1,235. Listen to what Paul begins his letter with. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. God the Father who did what? Ray. Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus Christ did not raise himself from the dead. Who raised him? God the Father. And you know what that speaks to us? You know what that speaks volumes to us? God the Father said, what you did on the cross, I accept. And I'm going to raise you to prove it to everybody. I'm going to raise you to prove it to everybody. That There is new life in Christ. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ was in the grave. But Jesus Christ, on the day that we are celebrating right now, on Easter morn, He rose from the grave because God said, I accept your payment and there is new life in you, just like He has new life. And anybody that accepts Jesus Christ by faith will have new life in Christ the same life that Christ had when God raised him from the dead. And we don't get that picture, we don't understand that whole picture unless we start in Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We don't get that. We, have, we, we split the gospel up into these nice little sections because it's fun and it's, there's nothing wrong with it, but we forget the big picture. 
This was God's plan from Genesis 1.1. God the Father gave us assurance that He accepted Jesus' payment for our sins by raising Him from the dead. And this is why we have hope. Now, I've already answered the question that he did, but I, I want to answer, ask it in this way. Why did the promised Savior have to rise from the grave? Because there's more than one answer. Because there's a number of things that we need to understand. And I want to take us through them very, very quickly. Why did the promised Savior have to rise? Because he said he would. Look at Matthew chapter 17. I don't have these, the page numbers on this. Matthew chapter 17. They are all on the notes that are in the back if you want to look them up on your own. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 22. This is the Jesus at the, trans, the Mount of Transfiguration. Chapter 17, verse 22. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on what? The third day. If Jesus Christ had not been raised from the dead, Jesus Christ would have been a liar, and we can throw the Bible away. Jesus Christ said, I am going to rise again. That's why He had to rise. That's another. Uh, all these things that we are looking at now. Why did the promised Savior have to rise? Because He said He would. He also had to rise from the grave because His rising from the grave validates our faith. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 14. And I want you to grasp this. There is no assurance of your faith. None. This is the bedrock. This is the nail that everything is hung on. If Jesus Christ did not rise again, you have no assurance that your faith is worth anything. And listen to what, again, Paul writes. <coughs> Excuse me. Starting in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. He says... Anybody who preaches Jesus Christ, if he was not raised, then what I'm doing here right now is worthless. Shut the doors, lock them up, and sell this building. Because it's worthless if Jesus Christ didn't rise again. Our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. You can put your faith, you can have the, the greatest amount of faith of anybody on this planet, but if Jesus Christ did not rise again, it's worthless. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that He raised Christ. Again, there's God doing it. Whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not, dead are not raised. Basically, we make God a liar. And if God is a liar, our faith is in vain. Going on from verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, those who have preceded us in death, is what he's saying, in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. If we place our faith in a person who did not rise from the dead, we are the most pitiful people on the planet, because not only do we lie about God, but we are self-deceived. 
Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Because he said he would and be to validate our faith. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, 1 Peter 1, 3, we also find that this rising from the dead, Jesus Christ rising from the dead, gives us hope. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed, Peter writes, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To a living hope. We are alive in Christ. We have new birth in Christ. But only because of His resurrection, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without new life in Christ Himself rising from the dead, we have no life of our own. Jesus Christ rising from the dead gives us hope. And there is no hope without that. And then we see in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 7, verse 4. You weren't raised to a new life in Christ just so you can live for yourself. You see, when we're raised to new life through our faith in Jesus Christ based on the hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ Himself, then we lay at His feet and we offer our lives to Him and say, Lord God, You use our life as Your tool. We give up our rights. We give up our identity. We are no longer uh, Pastor Mark or, or uh, uh, male Mark or female Kathy. We are identified most fervently that we are Christ followers. We belong to him. And listen to what it says here in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear good fruit. We belong to Jesus Christ so that we can bear good fruit that he has prepared for us in the past. We are to bear his fruit, not our fruit, not our careers, not our families. The fruit that he has Born, made us born again in, that He has planned for us in eternity past, that is why His resurrection is important. Because if His resurrection didn't happen, there is no good fruit in our lives. There is no good in our lives that will mean anything when it comes to the judgment seat of Jesus Christ if He didn't rise. So why did the promised Savior have to rise? Last one. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Please go back and look at all these verses in context. Like I said, all these verses are in the notes back in the foyer. Chapter 6, verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up by His power. If Jesus Christ didn't rise, then there is no resurrection for us. There is no resurrection for us. Jesus Christ rose again to assure us of our own resurrection, to assure us that we will spend an eternity with Him, to assure us that we have been brought to new life, to assure us that there is hope in this life here and hope in a heaven that we are going to see. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, none of these things can happen. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, Jesus would be a liar. 
If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, we wouldn't have a validated faith. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, we would have no hope. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, we could bear no good fruit. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we know we are still lost and we will not rise from the dead either. That is why we celebrate today. That is why we celebrate Easter, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Our trip is finished. We've looked at God's plan of salvation to save us uh, from Genesis all the way through Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. This trip has taken us through several thousand years of human history, and we have watched God in His sovereignty move history. God moved history so that each of these things would happen in its time. We've watched this starting way back in Advent. We've seen God moving human history the resurrection of Jesus Christ, a resurrection that brings hope and salvation from our sins, a new life to live with our Savior for all of eternity, and a reason to live each day here no matter what we encounter. That is why Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And you want to know some? The major fruit that we are supposed to bear here in this church is to go tell everybody else about that resurrection. We were saved to be lights for Jesus Christ. We were saved so our whole lives are so wrapped in Jesus Christ and in His church and in His people that we go out into the community and the community looks at us and they don't understand who we are because we are different. We love differently. We prioritize differently. We relate differently. We think of ourselves differently. And it's all because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the new life that we have in ourselves. When we leave here this morning, it's not about the ham that is in the oven. It's not about the potatoes that I can't wait to eat or whatever is on the plate because I don't know what's to eat when I leave here. We just got back at 2.30 in the morning, folks. All right? It's not about that. It's not about Easter Sunday clothes, even though y'all look good. It's not about that. It's that Jesus Christ died for us when we didn't deserve it. It's He saved us and God loved us enough to make sure that there was a way that we didn't have to face His judgment. And the world needs to know that. This Easter is something that reminds us of all of this. And I don't want anybody walking out that door this morning without understanding who Jesus Christ is. There's two groups of people here this morning. Those who have been saved by Jesus Christ. Those who have understand this story and even understand it better now because we've started in Genesis and gone all the way through the Gospels. It is now that we understand this where we stand at the end of our trip at the town of resurrection that we praise God for our new life, that we lift Jesus Christ up and we understand when we walk out here and start another year after Easter that we have a job that Jesus Christ is the one who saved us because God loved us. And we need to praise God for that. And as we close, I'm going to give you the, uh, those who are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. As Michelle comes up, a chance just to praise God for this Easter. Don't make the rest of this Easter day just about eating lunch or spending time with family because it is so much more than that. 
But there's another group of people here too. Those who don't know Christ. Those who will stand with thousands of indictments before Jesus Christ. I don't want anybody to know that. I don't want anybody to be on that side of Christ. And Jesus Christ has died and provided salvation for anybody that would come to Him in faith. Would come before Him and bow down before Him and say, I'm sorry. I repent of my sins and please save me. And now we have a new identity. We have a new reason to live. We have a reason to go to Mexico. We have a reason to go to Swansea. We have a reason to go to North and to Columbia with the light of Jesus Christ. And so, if you don't know Jesus Christ, or if you're not sure you know Jesus Christ, if you don't understand maybe everything that we talked about today, but you know it's in the Bible because we just went through the whole thing, then I ask you to come and see me at some time. I'll stand up here this morning for a few minutes after service if you need to come up here and talk to me and maybe we can uh, arrange to meet. But I want you to understand who my Savior is. I want you to understand that you can have new life in Him. I, won't, I don't want you to stand with all those indictments against Jesus Christ, against yourself at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. So please bow your heads right now. If you are saved here this morning, this is a time for you to just praise God for this day. Praise God for it being Easter. Praise God that He rose from the dead, that He raised His Son from the dead. Praise God that your sins are taken care of and that you have a life in Jesus Christ. If you're not sure that you're saved, if you have questions, which a lot of the stuff we went over today raises Hundreds of questions, I know that. Then just don't put it off if there's something in your heart that you say, I just, I just need to know more. Father God, we come before you on this holiday that we call Easter, celebrating the resurrection of our Savior Jesus Christ, the resurrection, Lord God. That gives us hope in our faith. That gives us hope that, we'll be ri- ro- that we will rise again. That gives us hope that we will spend an eternity with you. And Lord God, we bow before we praise your name. We lift you up because you provided a way of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for not just allowing us to stay in our sin, but in your love reaching down to us and saying, I will provide a way through my Son. And Father, I ask that if there's anybody here this morning who is not sure what it means to be a Christian, who is not sure if they are saved, if they're not, they have questions about this resurrection and about salvation and about the Bible or about anything, Lord God, that pertains to their life and where they stand before you, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts I pray that you would prick their hearts. I pray that you wouldn't let them rest. I pray, the Lord God, that you would make them uncomfortable until they talk to somebody to find out more about Jesus Christ. Father, we praise your name 
that we have a day to celebrate Easter, a day that we can look to you and know that our Son is sitting, our Savior is sitting at the right hand of the Father, right hand, your right hand, interceding for us because he died for us. Thank you for that, Lord God. Thank you for this day. Thank you again for Jesus Christ and this trip that we've been on. In Christ's name, amen.